invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Psalm 98, Psalm 98, and uh, you'll find our passage, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 500, Psalm 98. Stephen last week preached uh, from Psalm 57, and we are now currently in a series in the Psalms. And some of you know that over the years, I've had this sequential series going in the Psalms, and so uh, I will spend maybe one year, I'll work through five to ten Psalms and uh, take a break, and then the next year we'll come around and we'll just pick back up where we left off, and we'll do another five to ten Psalms and just kind of working through. And so we've made our way to Psalm 98, and uh, we're going to start with Psalm 98, and the next several weeks we'll be moving through uh, the Psalms and uh, continuing to work through this book. Uh, The Psalms are such an important book for the Christian life because in the Psalms you find not just Christian truth and doctrine, but really in the Psalms you have an articulation of Christian experience. All the joys and the sorrows, the ups and the downs, it's all there in the Psalms. And so The psalmist is giving us vocabulary to speak about our Christian experience. And we come this morning to a psalm of praise in Psalm 98. And I want to turn our attention there this morning. So Psalm 98, a psalm. O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do uh, come to you now in this time in dependence upon you, um, even as we have prayed psalms, even throughout uh, this service, with our prayer of confession and dependence, the pastoral prayer. Now we, we come before you to look at this psalm, and, and we want it to be the prayer of our heart, the voice of our heart, that we are a people who sing and rejoice in your salvation. So, Father, come now and help us in this time. We wait upon you. We pray that you would meet with us by your Spirit. We pray that you would cause us to be the kind of people that are described here in this psalm. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. I don't know if we have any Swifties with us here this morning. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about. A Swifty is an avid fan of Taylor Swift. And uh, Taylor Swift is perhaps, I don't think we have a Swifty. Okay. Uh, Taylor Swift is perhaps 
the biggest pop music star of our generation. Now, you might ask, well, how big of a pop star is she? Well, Taylor Swift's most recent music tour exceeded, as many of you know, $1 billion in revenue, becoming the highest grossing music tour in history. And folks have projected that if sales remain as they are and she completes the tour, that by the time the tour is over, she will eclipse $2 billion in earnings. Here's the thing. Psalm 98 describes a concert of much grander proportions. A concert that dwarfs the Swift Tour. It is a cosmic concert with God at the center and all creation singing His praise. And the invitation of Psalm 98, and it's really more than an invitation, it's a summons, it's a decree, it's a command. The decree, the summons, the command of Psalm 98 is that we join in this concert and that we sing to the Lord. This call to sing is actually a unique emphasis in Christianity, and I would say a uniquely joyful and happy emphasis. Christians are a singing people. Listen to John Piper's words on this point, and I'm going to quote, I'm going to cite this. It's a little bit of a long quote, but I believe it'll be beneficial. He writes, quote, I don't think there are any other religions that sing like Christians sing. Christians really make music over their faith. I think that is an amazing and unique thing. I don't think there are any other faiths in the world that come close. In fact, some faiths like Islam don't even believe in singing. The fact that Christianity is a singing religion bears witness not only to the way we are wired as human beings, but to the kind of God we have. God is so valuable and so beautiful and so multifaceted in His perfections that to leave out the emotional component and not let it spill over in poetry and song would be to leave out a key element in worship. I really don't have a lot of patience, frankly, with Christians who want to put a lid on music and singing or put it back five centuries or limit it to one kind of instrument or take away all instrumental music and just let it be voice. I think that all of that is hopelessly defeatist because we humans have explosive souls and the reason we do is because God is explosively beautiful and great and glorious He is going to call out from us song and music of every kind, and we might as well just let it out and try and bring it into its deep, powerful significance with truth, end of quote. Psalm 98 is a call for us to let it out, to sing, to sing to the Lord. James Boyce observes that Psalm 98 is, quote, one of the most joyful songs in the Bible. It is noisy and effervescent from its beginning to its end, end of quote. So let's look at Psalm 98 more closely this morning. And as we do, may we be a people who respond to its joyful summons with joyful song to the Lord. We'll look at the psalm in three parts. It actually divides nicely into three stanzas. First, we'll consider a call for the people of God to sing. Secondly, a call for the whole earth to sing. And third, a call for all creation to sing. 
So look there in verses 1 through 3, and we see a call for the people of God to sing. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. In the original language here, the opening line of Psalm 98 is a command. It is an imperative. Sing to the Lord. And notice the psalmist then announces the reason why we are to sing. He writes in Psalm 98 verse 1, Sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. So that's the reason why we are to sing to the Lord. Because the Lord has done marvelous things. Now what are these marvelous things? Well, the psalmist then unfolds these marvelous things. He unpacks them and explains to us what they are in the rest of verses 1 through 3. So in verse 1, notice, His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. So this is one of the marvelous things He has done. He has worked salvation. And when the psalmist speaks of God's salvation, he could be thinking here of the Exodus when God delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage and slavery. He could be thinking of the conquest of the land of Canaan and how God granted Israel victory over their enemies as they occupied the promised land. But most scholars seem to believe, and I agree, that the psalmist here is most likely referring to God's deliverance of Israel from Babylonian exile and to his, their restoration to the promised land. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. What do I mean by the Babylonian exile and the restoration of Israel to the promised land? Well, you see, there was a period of history in which due to Israel's sin and rebellion, God allowed the nation to be conquered by Assyria and then by Babylon. And many of the Jews were removed from their land, from the land of promise, and they were exiled in Babylon. But after 70 years of exile, after 70 years of being under these oppressive regimes, God providentially and graciously delivered Israel and allowed them to return to the land. They were delivered from Babylonian exile. And this, I believe, is the salvation of which the psalmist speaks here in Psalm 98. In fact, we see these ideas here of, it seems that the psalmist is speaking of Babylonian exile here, and he speaks of the Lord delivering His people from Babylonian exile with His arm, with His mighty hand. And we see that the prophet Isaiah, when he speaks of Israel's deliverance from Babylonian exile, he uses the same kind of language. So in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, Isaiah there is speaking of Israel's deliverance from Babylonian exile, and he uses the same kind of language and imagery. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So this is one of the things that the Lord has done. This is one of the marvelous things that He has done for which the people of God are to sing. He has delivered them. He has worked salvation for them. 
But that's not all the marvelous things God has done. Not only has He worked salvation, notice there in verse 2, the Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. And then He goes on in verse 3 to say, similar concept, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So not only has God worked salvation, but He's made it known. He's revealed it. He's done it in such a way that others can see it and witness it. This means that God's work of deliverance and salvation is not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not a fairy tale that's just made up. It's not hidden so that no one knows that it's happened. Rather, God's work of salvation is on display. It is written across the record of human history. In fact, one of the apologetics or defenses for the truthfulness of Scripture is God's perpetual preservation of the nation of Israel. It is a remarkable thing that despite all of her enemies throughout history, God has preserved the nation of Israel even to this day. And again, what we see the psalmist doing here as he describes God's deliverance and salvation, he describes it in such a way that the prophet Isaiah uses the same kind of language, the same kind of imagery. So the psalmist here seems to be speaking of deliverance from Babylonian exile. He speaks of it in such a way that God is using his mighty hand, his arm to deliver the people. And God does this in such a way so that others see it, so that they know it. And Isaiah speaks of it in the same manner. In Isaiah 52, verse 10, speaking again of the Lord's deliverance of Israel from Babylonian exile, he says, The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So these are some of the marvelous things that the Lord has done. He has worked salvation. He has revealed and made known His salvation. But then notice as well, In verse 3, he is also, this is another marvelous thing he has done, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. So when Israel was defeated and when her enemies were victorious, when they were taken from their homes and they were exiled, when they were under oppressive regimes, it may have seemed that the Lord had forgotten them, that the Lord had forgotten his promise, that the Lord had forsaken his people. But their salvation, their deliverance is a testimony that the Lord, in fact, has remembered His steadfast love and His faithfulness. So these are the marvelous things that the Lord has done. He has worked salvation. He has made His salvation known so that others have seen it. And He has remembered His steadfast love and His faithfulness. And as a result... The psalmist says that the people of God are to sing to the Lord, and notice it there in verse 1, they are to sing to the Lord a new song. A new song for a new and a fresh deliverance. You know, in Exodus chapter 15, this is a significant point in the biblical storyline. God delivers Israel from Egyptian bondage and slavery. And as they come out of that Um, bondage and slavery. In Exodus chapter 15, we have the song of Moses. As Moses is rejoicing in the deliverance and the salvation of God. 
But there does seem to be this sense that the psalmist has now that the, the song of Moses is an old song for an old and past deliverance. But now he's calling the people of God to sing a new song for a new and a fresh deliverance. And oh, my friends, as Christians who have experienced God's salvation and deliverance from sin and from death and from hell through faith in the atoning blood of Jesus and through faith in the glorious resurrection of Jesus from the dead, how much more should we sing a new song to the Lord? And in fact, this is what Christians love to sing. Christians love to sing of God's salvation and deliverance through Jesus. Last week, if you were here with us for our gathered worship, one of the songs that we sang was, It Is Well With My Soul. And it's a great hymn, and every verse in that hymn is worthy of being sung. But I hear it in our voices, and I see it in our faces that our hearts swell with a special joy and confidence when we sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Is this not what we love to sing? To sing of the salvation of the Lord. And this is one of the reasons why the songs that we sing here at Crawford Avenue are not filled with just vague, abstract ideas about who God is. They're not primarily focused on the virtues of good morals and right behavior. But rather the songs we sing are filled with specific and concrete truths of the gospel. Of the good news of God's salvation and deliverance in Jesus. The truths that God is holy and we are sinners. That Christ is our Savior. That His atoning blood is our only hope of salvation and redemption. That His resurrection is our life. And His salvation is our joy and our peace. This is what we love to sing. And we will sing of this salvation for all eternity. Notice second. Not only is there first a call for the people of God to sing, but second we see a call for the whole earth to sing. A call for the whole earth to sing. Look there in verses 4 through 6. The psalmist writes, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous songs and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. So, As we looked at the first stanza, verses 1 through 3, we see that the people of God are called to sing as a result of the Lord's salvation and deliverance, the fact that He's remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness. But notice in verse 4 now, as we come into the second stanza, that the call is for all the earth to make a joyful noise to the Lord and to break forth into joyful song and to sing praises. So what we see here is that the We could say it this way, the concert is expanding. The participants in the choir are growing. What began with Israel and the people of God in the first stanza now includes all the peoples of the earth in the second stanza. Notice also that in verses 1 through 3, the Lord is presented to us primarily as a Savior, as a Deliverer. But now in verses 4 through 6, the Lord is presented to us as King. 
You see it there in verse 6. With the trumpets and the sound of the horn make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. And this makes sense because actually Psalms 93 through 100 are known as the kingship psalms. They are psalms that stress the fact that God is King. And in this section, the psalmist goes on to describe, particularly in this section, even more so than the others, the psalmist goes on to describe how the whole earth is to respond to the king and to sing to the Lord. So there's an emphasis here on how we are to sing. Notice as you look at the stanza as a whole in verse 4, it begins with this command, make a joyful noise to the Lord. And then the stanza ends with the same command in verse 6, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. And that command to make a joyful noise, actually, literally it reads, make a shout. So we've translated it here, at least in the ESV, make a joyful noise. But literally, it means make a shout. So the text reads, make a shout to the Lord, make a shout before the King, the Lord. And then you see in verses 4 through 5 that there's another appeal to sing. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. So here's an appeal to sing, but not only to sing, there's a a call for instrumentation. A lyre is a stringed instrument that is similar to a harp. And then the psalmist calls for instruments that befit a king. You see it there in verse 6, with trumpets, or it could be translated bugle. A trumpet or a bugle would have been made of metal. It was handcrafted, humanly engineered. With trumpets and with the sound of the horn, the word horn here in Hebrew is shofar. We could say this is a, a natural instrument. It's actually literally taken from the horn of an animal and used as an instrument. So with trumpets and with the sound of a horn, make a joyful noise before the Lord, before the King, the Lord. And you see, both trumpets and horns were used to announce the arrival of a king. These are instruments that befit a king. And so how are all the peoples of the earth to sing to the Lord? Well, the psalmist tells us here, with shouts, with joyful song with more delicate instruments like lyres, and with loud blasts of trumpets and with horns. I believe John Wesley, famous Christian evangelist and pastor, I believe he captures well the sentiment of the psalmist here when he writes, quote, Sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or asleep. But lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of its being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. End of quote. I'm going to read that again because that's so helpful. Sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of its being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. Now let me just make a brief distinction here. I, I would not go as far as to say that our singing in church should mirror 
Say, for example, our boisterous cheering for our favorite sports team. In all honesty, I prefer that the men of our church don't attend our services shirtless with Jesus painted on their chest. Okay? It's just my personal preference. Neither do I think we should look exactly like a gathering of Swifties bellying out their favorite Taylor Swift songs at a concert. Christian worship should be characterized by a certain reverence and awe that is not required or necessary at a football game or a concert. But listen, my friends, if we yell into our throats or horse at a ball game, or we bellow out our favorite songs at a concert with reckless abandon, and then we do not sing, or we barely whisper the praises of God in the house of God, then something is profoundly wrong. Either we have little or no appreciation of the King to whom we sing, or we do not understand Christian worship. We see here that the psalmist is calling all the peoples of the earth to sing lustily and with good courage. To sing with shouts and joy, to sing with skill and with zeal, to sing with volume and boldness and courage. And the Lord delights in such singing. Third, we see a call for all creation to sing. So a call for the people of God to sing, a call for the whole earth to sing, and third, a call for all creation to sing. Look there in verses 7 through 9. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So let's just think about this now as we've been working through the psalm. In verses 1 through 3, Israel is called to sing. In verses 4 through 6, all the earth is called to sing. And now in verses 7 through 9, all creation is called to sing. In particular, nature is called to sing to the Lord. Look there in verse 7. The sea and all that fills it. The world and those who dwell in it. Verse 8, the rivers and the hills. And notice that they are to roar, and they are to clap, and they are to sing. Richard Phillips, a Christian pastor, laments, quote, How tragic it is that unbelieving man does not look on nature as his partner in giving praise to God, but either uh, deifies it in idolatry or defiles it in self-absorption. How tragic it is, he says, that unbelieving man does not look on nature as his partner in praising God, but either deifies it in idolatry or defiles it in self-absorption. Some deify creation. They worship it. They value creation over the Creator. They may claim there is no God, that there's only matter and stuff in the physical world that we see. Years ago, there was a famous television show called Cosmos, and the host Carl Sagan was known for declaring that, quote, the cosmos is all that is, or that ever was, or that ever will be. You see, that is deifying creation. Creation is ultimate. 
On the other hand, some people defile creation in self-absorption. They conclude that the only thing that is of value, the only thing that is of worth, is that which is spiritual, the soul. Therefore, the creation only exists for us to consume and then discard. But both approaches are misguided and contradict a biblical understanding of creation. Creation cannot usurp the place of God. Creation owes its existence to God. Creation should not be deified. On the other hand, creation is not inherently evil or destined to distinction. And so creation should not be defiled or discarded. Rather, creation was created by God and for the glory of God. And so why is it that the creation here in verses 7 through 8, why is it that the creation will roar, will clap, will sing and praise to God? It might not be for the reason you would naturally think. Notice there in verse 9. I'll start in verse 8. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Why? For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So in verses 1 through 3, God is presented to us as the Savior. In verses 4 through 6, the Lord is presented to us as a king. But here in verses 7 through 9, He is presented to us as a judge. And here we learn that creation will sing to the Lord, will roar, will clap to His praise. Why? Because He comes to judge the earth. Why would creation sing to the Lord for His judgment? We actually talked about this in our series last year in Romans chapter 8. Paul speaks of this dynamic in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 22, when he writes, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. You see, as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion, both humanity and nature have experienced the curse of sin. So creation, on the one hand, is magnificently beautiful, and we witness that all around us. And on the other hand, creation is tragically chaotic and destructive. And hence, we witness and feel the ill effects of hurricanes and tornadoes and mudslides and torrential downpours and avalanches and tsunamis and plagues and diseases. In all these ways, creation is suffering under the bondage of corruption. It is suffering under the curse of sin. But when Christ returns and when God judges the world through Christ, Creation will be set free from the curse of sin. Creation itself will be redeemed and restored and made new. And tranquility and peace and life will reign. And at that time, all creation will stand as an eternal testimony to the beauty and the glory of God. And every molecule of creation, whether animate or inanimate, will sing and resound to the glory of God. 
Isaac Watts is a famous hymn writer in the Christian tradition, and in 1719, he was actually moved by this text here, Psalm 98, and it led him to write a hymn that is very well known now, a hymn entitled, Joy to the World. The hymn is actually a reflection on verses 4 through 9 in this psalm, Psalm 98. Many Christians identify this, this hymn, Joy to the World, with Christmas, and we often sing it around Christmas time, which is good and appropriate. But in actuality, Isaac Watts did not originally write the hymn as a reflection of Christ's first coming, his birth, but rather, based on Psalm 98 here, as a reflection of his second coming when he would come to judge the world. The hymn is actually a description of Christ's glorious second coming. With that in mind, listen to the words of this famous hymn again. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Remember in verse 6, the Lord is described as a king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. That is all creation, right? As the psalmist is describing here in Psalm 98. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. There's kingship language again, right? He reigns, he rules. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains, that's all creation, right? That's nature. Repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. Now listen to verse 3. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow, Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. This is the reason creation sings, right? This is what the psalmist is speaking of in Psalm 98. When God finally judges the world, the curse of sin will be ultimately eradicated and creation will be fully restored and redeemed. Verse 4, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love, the wonders of his love, the wonders of his love. This is the language of a king who judges and who rules and who reigns in righteousness. It is a description of the second coming of the Lord Jesus and his righteous judgment. And when he comes, creation will sing. So we've seen here a call for the people of God to sing, a, a call for all the earth to sing, a call for all creation to sing. And the question is, have you joined the song? Have you joined the cosmic song that will ring for all eternity? Do you sing? The psalmist here is issuing an invitation. It's more a command, a decree, a summons. To sing of the Lord's salvation. To sing of His kingly reign. To sing of His righteous judgment. If you have not already looked to Christ in faith, let me encourage you even now to trust in His atoning death on the cross for your salvation. To bow your knee and yield to Him as King. And to look with expectation and with longing to His second coming where He will come to judge and restore creation to its right order. And my friends, as we trust, 
And as we yield and as we wait, let us sing. Let us sing to the Lord a new song. As we close, I want to give you three practical ways that you can do that. First, in Sunday morning gathered worship. What an extraordinary blessing it is that we are given the privilege and the opportunity to gather on Sunday mornings to worship the Lord. Come ready to sing. To sing lustily. To sing with good courage. Second, you can check out our church's song list that John has put together. I'm grateful that he has done this. It's entitled Avenue Music on Spotify. And so if you have access to Spotify, you can go check out Avenue Music and the list of our songs are there. You can listen to them, listen to them anytime you want to, and you can allow the words of those songs to be hidden in your own heart, which will not only do you well personally, but will prepare you to sing on Sunday mornings. And then third and finally, commit to a life of song. Commit to a life of song. Commit to a person who by God's grace will sing in the shower and in the car and with the people of God. And as you sing, not only will your singing bring glory to God, but it will change you. As you sing the truths of God's glory and salvation and deliverance and kingly reign and coming judgment, you will find fresh faith and hope and love and strength and grace to celebrate the joys of life and to faithfully persevere in daily trials and sorrows. May we be a people who sing to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm and we thank you, Lord, that you have created us, Lord, to sing. That our faith is not just facts and truth, but Lord, it is reality to be rejoiced in in our hearts, to be experienced at an emotional level, and for that to be expressed through poetry and through song. Father, we do pray that you would make us a singing people, and Lord, I thank you, even as I preach this message, I thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of our congregation to sing, for so many in our congregation who delight in singing and rejoicing in you and what an encouragement it is to me and to all of us. Lord, help us to be a people who sing to you and who encourage one another through song. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen.